everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Alison Grunendike. So Tim Keller is a well-known author and a pastor at a church in New York City, and he often gets asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian blank? Fill in the blank with that. What does it mean to be a Christian farmer? What does it mean to be a Christian airline pilot? And his response is pretty witty. He says, well, if you're a Christian farmer, you should probably produce great food at a great price. And he says, if you're a Christian airline pilot, you should land the plane (laughs) Uh, and smoothly, right? So basically, he's saying, whatever you're doing, just do it really well. And then he goes on to say, but your work is not going to make a lot of sense to you unless you have a Christian worldview, meaning you have a lens that you're using to look at the world and make sense of it that actually helps you see who God is and who he's made you to be and that allows you to actually be more human. So you see, our work is not going to make sense to us unless we put it in context. We need a story to make sense of what we're doing here. And unfortunately, I think one of the most common stories in the American church is this. When I come here, I do God's work, and when I go out there, I just make money. Now, I definitely think that is the path of least resistance. It's much easier, right, to put your work in a box and say, work is over here, church is over here, this is nice and pretty, it makes sense to me. But I actually think it's the wrong narrative. I don't think it is complete. And so I want to talk just real quick to set this up about the grand narrative of the Bible. So we're looking at a story that God gives us to understand who we are. And it goes something like this. It has some major themes of creation and then the fall. And what I mean by that is falling into sin and then redemption and restoration. And you probably know this, but I'm just going to give you a really quick summary, right? So we have to come at this with the understanding that God is the creator of all things. And he actually made things to be good. And what I mean by good is pure, like totally how it's supposed to be. That's where we start. And from there, God made people. And then the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden when they didn't want to take God's instructions to not eat a certain fruit. And so they fell into sin, right? And out of right relating with God. And then, unfortunately... They passed on their sin nature to us. And redemption comes, right, through Jesus. God says, hey, I'm going to send Jesus to die in your place so that he absorbs the consequences of your mistake, of your mess up, of your sin. And now he's in the space of restoring us and restoring the world. And while we're still looking forward to this day where everything is fixed and beautiful and as it's supposed to be, um, we're not there yet. So I want us to look really quick at Genesis, right? The very 
very first story of the creation, early, early on in the Bible, um, I think it's really important to note that God actually gives people work to do before sin enters the picture. That's significant. And you might say, why? Why does God give humans work? Well, I think one reason is that we're created in his image, and he creates things. He went to do the work of creation. So in Genesis 2.2, it says, on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from his work. And the Hebrew word for work there actually translates as business, which is pretty interesting because some of us are in businesses, and some of us say, I need to go about my business, right? And so God is going about his business of creating. And then later in Genesis 2.15, he says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. And the tending and the watching over here gets translated as care for it and preserve it. So God has his business. He's up to some business of creating and making good things. And then he says, now it's your job to preserve the good things. So what does that tell us? Work as originally designed by God, is not meant to burden us. It's not meant to be fruitless. God is giving us purpose as human beings and giving us purpose in our work, and not just any work. He actually says, you get to do my work, right? I'm giving you my creation to take care of all the things I love. Now you get to do that. So the question is then why in a 2009 study that was done at Stanford, do we find that only 17% of high school freshmen have any sense of purpose? And then they pulled those same students later as seniors, and unfortunately that statistic only goes up 5% to 23% of high school seniors have any sense of what they're doing with their life. Unfortunately, uh, my experience was similar at the university level. I taught for two years at the University of Northern Iowa. And when I was teaching, um, I would pull in my freshmen and just set up one-on-one -on -one meetings with each of them to say, hey, let's go over the expectations and what your clinical practicum is going to look like this semester. And I would always start with the question, why? Why speech pathology? Why do you want to do this with your life? And sadly, I would say around that same statistic, probably about 25% of the students actually had a compelling answer that had some vision to it. Most of them said, well, my parents said to make a lot of money. And if I work in the schools, I can have my summers off. So it's not really a good idea. Okay, now don't hear me, there's nothing wrong with being practical for wanting to make a good earning and to have your summers off. That is, I'm not coming against that, but what I'm saying is, it struck me, these students are making huge life decisions based on what's lucrative and what's convenient. The gift got tainted in the garden. And so, too, somewhere along the way, we have lost side of the story, and we've lost our purpose along with it. Roy Spence is the founder of something called the Purpose Institute, 
And he basically works with advertising companies on something that he calls purpose-based branding. And I have this quote up here from him, and the fun part of this story is that I was researching a little bit for this talk, and I picked up um, this publication called The ASHA Leader, and this is my speech pathologies, national organizations, like uh, monthly publication. And I found an interview with Roy Spence in this magazine, in this uh, journal, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool, and it turns out that ASHA, which is again the American Speech Language Hearing Association, is bringing Roy Spence to the national convention this year. And he's gonna talk to speech pathologists about purpose, like doing something on purpose. And he basically says the road to purpose is full of happiness and joy, and every time I get off the road, I'm not as fulfilled, not as happy, and I'm not as productive. If you have purpose in your work, you never have a job. You just have work to do. And I loved that because I, it just reminded me of the fact that God gave us work early on before everything was tainted, when it was in its original form. We get to do work. And so if we have purpose behind it, I think that is where we get our meaning. So this sounds like the kind of life I want to have. And it's the kind of life that I want you all to live too. And so what we're gonna do with the rest of the time is just kind of use this biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration to look at what does it mean to become more human as we work? What could this look like? And how is this countercultural to maybe what the world is telling us? So I will credit uh, Tim Keller. He was super helpful in researching and doing some of this work. So just know he's, he's the man. Got a lot of good ideas from him. So the first thing is Jesus gives you a worldview without which work would become your master and not your servant. So see, you do need a worldview, right? You do need a place and a way to understand what's going on in your life. We all have it, even if you don't acknowledge that it's Christian, right? You are using some sort of lens uh, to make sense of what's happening to you. And the Christian worldview is there is not a single inch of creation that doesn't belong to God. It's all his, and so we want to work in a manner in which God does. And we see God working in the Bible with justice and compassion and care and creativity. Just a few weeks ago, uh, the staff was making kind of a tough decision about our kids' ministry. And we were getting really lost in all of the details, right? And don't get me wrong, I love details. So I'm sitting there going, well, what about this? And what about this? And how is this going to affect this? And if we change this, then this person's going to be upset. And it was, it was becoming really, really murky. And someone said, well, I just don't think this is going to be fair for everybody. And then we realized, well, gosh, fair is like a moving target. Fair is what's fair for you is not fair for me. And so we were really stuck. And then there was just this breakthrough that happened. And we said, wait a minute. What if we just change the story? What if the metric that we use for our kids' ministry becomes engagement? What if we look at, are the kids 
engaging in the process of learning about Jesus? Are they engaged with their peers? Are they having fun? Do they have relationship with the other kids in their class and with their teachers? What if that is what we're looking at to make decisions? And then it just became super crystal clear. Like, this is the way forward. So basically, with a worldview, my work can serve the purpose of Jesus, right? It doesn't become my own ideas and my own thing that I'm trying to be a slave to. I can say, yeah, this serves the purpose that Jesus is giving me. And I think when, when work is my servant, when it's serving the purpose that I'm trying to do and what God's trying to do, I stay engaged it's a big picture, right? We got, we got way lost in the, in the details when we didn't have the right worldview of the kidsmen. And when I'm a slave to work and it becomes my master, I get really tunnel visioned real fast. And I think it's, it's easy to check out, to disengage. And that's something that Brené Brown is talking about in her text. Like, we have a problem with disengagement in our work. People are checked out. The next point is Jesus gives you a concept, I love this one, a concept of the dignity of all work, without which work can bore us. So I love this passage in Colossians. You're probably familiar with it, and it's simple but really, really profound, so I want to walk through it here a minute. Colossians 3.23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you're working for the Lord and not for men. So the word willingly, in other translations in the Bible, um, the word is heartily there. And what that really means um, in the Greek is the soul. And it's suke, uh, as Amos pronounces it. I would read it psyche, because it looks like psyche. And I'm the speech pathologist, so I'm going with psyche. Uh, but Basically, this is telling us it's the core of who you are that you bring to your work. Like, your inner self can show up at work. So he's not just saying, like, give it a good effort, put all your physical strength in it. He's saying, bring your whole self to your work. And then he goes on, and you notice that he says, at whatever you do. There is no hierarchy of importance here. It's just whatever you're doing. In fact, the people who do the simplest kinds of work really are the fingers of God because work is God caring for his creation. Right? Our culture likes to rank things and try to put labels on people and decide, well, who's really contributing in society, right? Like, it's got to be the people who are making the most money and doing the most stuff. Those are really the people who contribute. And then we like to say, well, these people over here don't seem like they're pulling their weight. God is not doing that here. We see God saying, are you caring for my world? And are you caring for the humans in it? If you can answer yes to any of those things, great. You're doing the work of God. If you're a landscaper and you're taking care of the grass, mow with excellence, right? If you're a janitor, 
you're making things clean for the rest of us. That's a huge thing because we all get to enjoy the cleanliness of our environment and of our world and of our buildings. And if you're a mom or a dad, like you can do the dishes unto Jesus. You can, right? Like I, the dishes are a huge area of conflict in uh, my marriage, but <laughs> I really try to do the, the dishes unto Jesus, but I'm not there yet. I have to read more of Brother Lawrence. He has a whole book on doing very simple menial tasks as unto God. But that is exciting, guys. Like, we are working for Jesus, not for people. It sounds really simple, but it's actually pretty cool. It's pretty profound that the creator of the universe is who we work for. Have you ever thought of that? It's pretty awesome. And I mean, I know we've all had these painful experiences in our work where we want to just give up, throw the towel in, because we're being oppressed or we, there's a shame-based culture at work where you're getting punished and made fun of. You know, and then sometimes you just, you dig deep and you find this inner strength to be like, I'm still showing up. I'm still going to serve. I'm still going to care. I'm still going to love these people. And really, I think for me, in those moments, I have to remember, like, God is doing work for me. That is why I can work. That is why I can show up. Like, he feeds me. He clothes me. He keeps me safe. So all of my work in service to God is coming out of this realization that God has first worked on my behalf. He's working for our good, and he's working for our flourishing, and that is an awesome foundation to have. The third thing I think that Jesus would say about our work is he wants to give us hope in our work. I mean, we need hope to go forward with all these things. And think about it. If you're an artist, your heart's desire is to, like, bring beauty to the world, to make it more beautiful, right? And if you're a city planner, your desire is to build the most efficient infrastructure and buildings and get services to the most people in your town. And if you're a lawyer, you're working for justice. But we live in this tension of being able to do really good work for Jesus and yet, there are still forces that oppose us, right? There's still toxic work environments. There are still things that are ugly, right, alongside the beauty that we experience. Our cities are still marked by poverty and crime. And our legal system is still quite broken, right? So, because of sin, going back to the big picture narrative, right, because of sin, we will not see the fruit of all of our labor on this side of heaven, right? In the earth, we're not going to see it all get accomplished the way that we hope for. There's going to be a ton of work left undone. There's much that we're going to do that feels like that was just for nothing. I mean, I have so many stories of patients who come in, uh, they have a stroke because they're not managing their diabetic neuropathy, we amputate their leg, we rehab them, send them back out, and then here they come back in three months later. And we call them the frequent flyers. And I say, oh, why are you back? This makes me sad. You know, like, was all my work for nothing. We're, like, seriously back just where we started. 
And I think God wants to say, you're working for me, and so you have to know, like, there is ultimate justice coming. There is ultimate beauty coming, and there is ultimate healing. So while we see the world like this is going nowhere, sometimes I feel like I'm taking steps backwards, there is a future that we look forward to. And I want to show you this in Isaiah 60. This is one of the most beautiful passages. And so if you're following along your Bible, I just want you to know I kind of chopped it up, spliced it a little bit just so we get the big picture and not take time to read the entire chapter. But this is a foreshadowing of what's to come in the new city that's described in Revelation. It's at the very end of the story, right? We start in Genesis. This is foreshadowing Revelation. And it says in Isaiah 60, Arise, Jerusalem. Let your light shine for all to see. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come and see your radiance. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy for merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring you the wealth of many lands. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you, the camels of Midian and Ephah. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. The, the flocks of Kadar will be given to you and the rams of Los Angeles will be brought... <laughs> Some other funny name. Uh, you are you are listening. I like it. Uh, <laughs> the rams will be brought to my altar. I will accept their offerings, and I will make my temple glorious. Whoa. Our hope is that Jesus will ultimately make all things new, you guys. Like, all of us will bring our gifts. That's what this passage is saying, like, we will bring the things that we have and we will get to be a part of the restoration. That gives me great hope for the fact that the things I do day in and day out, I'm going to also bring those same skills and those same gifts at the very end when God is like, we're really doing this. This is all coming into a beautiful space where it's all made right. Everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to participate. It doesn't matter. Any skill you have, people are coming from near and far all over the land to bring their gifts to Jesus. And he says, I will accept it. I will accept it and I will use it to make the temple glorious. It's pretty amazing. All right, point four. Still with me? Okay. I love this one. Faith gives you a moral compass without which your work can corrupt you. So we know this to be true, right? There are temptations everywhere you look in your workplace. It seems like everyone is trying to squeeze the last bit of productivity and profitability out of a deal, cut corners, do whatever it takes to win. You know, no, I'm not going to tell the investors what that's really worth because that would make them mad and they might leave. Or what, total transparency with my customer? No way. That might actually cost me to lose my job. Doing what is right can feel really vulnerable. 
And I know that you guys know that. Brené Brown, in this book, Daring Greatly, says, honest conversations about vulnerability and shame are disruptive. The reason that we're not having the conversations in our organizations is that they shine light in dark places, in dark corners. Isn't that interesting? Especially given the text we just read about at the end of time when things get restored, people are drawn to the light. And here she's saying, yeah, well, let's, not, let's not go there. Let's just gonna, we're going to ruffle people's feathers. We're going to make people angry. We don't have them because they shine light on the dark places. Do you guys know what the term whistleblower means? Is that something you're familiar with? Okay. So I always used to sort of mock those hotlines that they have at the hospital. I, I don't know if your workplace had this, but in my hospital, there was this hotline that you could call and report your coworkers' unethical behavior and practices. Do you guys have these? Yeah. Uh, so it's a good idea, right, in theory, but I don't know. Does anybody use them? I really don't know. But the thing is... It takes a ton more vulnerability and courage to instead of like picking up the phone and dialing the hotline and saying, I gotta rat out my coworker, to say, hey, nurse, who's standing with my patient, right? I really care about you and I really care about this patient and I'm really concerned that you didn't double check that dosage of medication and I'm worried that if you don't double check it, you might give this person too much medicine and cause a problem right? That's vulnerable. Because what's, what's the expected response? Don't tell me how to do my job, right? Mind your own business. Go do your work. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. Everybody's fine. <laughs> I've totally had that said to me. And then it's interesting, on the other side of the conversation, when people want to give us feedback, we hide, right? We do the same thing. Instead of saying, oh, wow, you're right, that was going to be an error. I'm so glad that you pointed that out to me. I'm so glad you told me about that. What if we could dare greatly and realize that we are not always going to get it right in our work? And we could really come at that with some humility and with some gratitude for that coworker who had the courage to point out my mistake. Because feedback is really, really necessary for transformation. And you guys know I'm all about transformation. I love talking about how we change, how we grow, how we become more of who God is wanting us to be. But it, it can't happen if you're just in a closed-loop cycle. Like if, if you run on autopilot in your jobs and as a parent and in your workplace, whatever, you're just going to keep doing the same things over and over, right? Like... I'm, I love routine, and I can get very, very, very attached to my routine. Get up, make the coffee, go get in my car, drive to work, do the things, come home. But, like, something has to disrupt that cycle. And I think that's what Brene Brown is saying in her, in her text on this. Have the conversation. Right? It's disruptive, yes. But it's so worth having it. And I think the Bible backs us up on this. 
So the next passage that I'm going to put up here, I'm sorry, the reference is actually wrong. It's not Hebrews. It's Ephesians 5, 8 to 13. And it says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. It is shameful even to mention what is disobedient, what the disobedient do in secret, but everything is exposed by the light. Everything that is exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I love this. Are you guys seeing this theme of light and darkness? It's amazing, right? This is a call to not be corrupted by evil, but to expose it in our workplaces. That is a super tall order. Like, who really wants to sign up to be like, I'm going to make everybody mad and show everybody where the darkness is? It's tough. Um, But I can't help think about how amazing it is at the same time that light brings exposure and vulnerability, but it, like I said earlier, it's also the same thing that draws people to God. Like, this is a way we say, hey, I'm choosing to live and do my work like this because there is a greater purpose for my life. There is someone who I get my value and my worth from, and I'm representing him when I do my work. I love it. The last point I want to make here that Jesus helps us with in our work is that faith or Jesus can give us an inner ballast. Without such, work would destroy you. Do you guys know what a ballast is? You got an anchor, something that's rooting you. When I was thinking about being destroyed by work, I came across... um, this story, and I don't know how true it is. It might be kind of one of those weird tales that gets told in healthcare, Uh, but there's a story that goes like this. Medical professionals uh, on their tombstones when they die, it says, born a man, died a doctor. And I thought, that's not to shame doctors, right? (laughs) You could fill in the blank for any profession there, but wow. Born a man, died a doctor. So somehow we started as a human, and then through the course of doing our work, something shifts and we become less human, and now all we are is reduced to our title. I have so lived in this place. (laughs) It was a long, rough battle with me and Jesus for probably five years to undo all of my tangled identity in my work and who I was as a, as a medical professional. And, you know, I think it's interesting, in more traditional cultures, people get their value from, like, their family assignment. So you're born, and they say, you are the shaman, or you are this, and, or you are the, the grandfather, or you are the son. And so your value is, like, just doing that role really well. Like, I'm going to be a really good son. I'm going to be a really good daughter in my family. But in Western culture, it's interesting that we basically say work is an end in of itself, right? 
We say, you can be anything you want, but the problem with that is that self-worth through our work is actually slavery. And I think it's slavery because what I've learned, at least, is success goes to my head, my successes go to my head, and my failures go to my heart. So we're just trapped in this cycle of trying to justify how good we are. And when we do great, our ego goes, right? And when we fail, it is this blow that can become totally paralyzing and totally take us out of the game to the point where we're disengaged, we're apathetic. We can't do it anymore. You see, your whole life can be destroyed and distorted if you don't have identity in Jesus. But if we're anchored by something beyond our performance, beyond our boss's reactions, beyond our kids' attitudes, I think only then can we actually start daring greatly in the arena of work. And Brené Brown basically says, we need to normalize discomfort. I love that phrase, normalize discomfort. She says, growth and learning are uncomfortable, so it's going to happen here. Right? You're going to feel that way. We want you to know that it's normal and it's an expectation. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. But the thing is, have you ever heard these words spoken to you at your school or your job? I definitely have. And if you have, that is amazing. And I want to hear your story. And I want you to come and like, let's figure out how we can make this more the culture. But sadly, that is not the narrative that I've ever heard at my job. But man, wouldn't it be a game changer if we realized that the way that we learn and grow is actually through making mistakes. And sometimes they're really big ones. Right? But when that happens, if we have an inner anchor, our failure doesn't have to go to the heart and it doesn't have to wound us and it doesn't have to stay there. I want to end with this passage from Hebrews 13.5. And it says, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So fill in the blank there. Don't love money. Don't love status. Don't love fame. Don't love applause of people. Don't love your numbers. That's a hard one. (laughs) But be satisfied in the work that God's given you to do. Be satisfied in what you have because Jesus won't ever fail you. When we talk about reversing the shame culture and being okay with our failures, I think, you guys, the only way that that's possible for me is to know that God doesn't fail me. So I can keep messing up and keep growing and keep stretching, but God will not fail you. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would continue to come and bring us into your light, God. Jesus, help us rest in the assurance that you created us and because you made us that we have purpose and we can have courage to be human and to rehumanize our workplaces. 
And we can fail, God, because you don't. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.